Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 288. Today's big Bible question, must Christians agree on everything? Well, hello, friends. Happy Saturday to you. Our Bible passages for today include 1 Kings 14, Psalms 95 and 96, Ezekiel 43, and Philippians 4. Today was a delightful day for our family that ended with fireworks, like many nights around here. We went to a lovely little pumpkin patch in the Salinas area, bought a half dozen pumpkins, and one strange gourd-looking kind of thing, went through a free corn maze that was surprisingly not at all haunted with ghosts or supernatural serial killers or creepy children, and we had a lovely old time. Since my wonderful wife is out of town, we've been rotating our cooking duties, and Cassidy and Chloe, our eldest and number third three child, handled the cooking, and they actually made some amazing Parmesan chicken and bell pepper kind of thing tonight with pasta. Fantastic. Last night, Abby, our second born, made some amazing... Uh, chocolate pie and delicious potato soup from scratch, like peeling the potatoes and everything. It was amazing. When it's my turn to cook tomorrow night, I'll be using my most excellent cooking skills to whip up some DoorDash, everybody's favorite pandemic company right about now, I guess along with Zoom, I suppose. Well, we didn't literally have fireworks tonight, even though it was a great day. We did have some metaphorical fireworks tonight. Ah, one of those hurt feelings kind of fights between two siblings. Well, what caused it? I'm not entirely sure. It was kind of like World War I, or maybe even more likely the Crimean War. Lots of loud noises and explosions, but nobody was quite sure what exactly ignited the continent. Fortunately for us, no archdukes were assassinated, but when I read the Philippians 4 passage tonight, which is our focus passage, and I hear Paul pleading with these two lovely ladies to agree, I cannot a hearty amen to that, because there's just something beautiful about agreement, isn't there? In our passage tonight, we find this jewel of a verse in Philippians 4, 2, and 3, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, I want you to consider those two verses. In particular, consider what is missing. Well, let's read the whole passage. And as we read, let's see if you can pick up on the thing that you might expect to be in that first little bit where Paul tells the two ladies to agree, but isn't there. Philippians chapter 4 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, and if there's anything praiseworthy, 
dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't see this. say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So I think it's very telling that Paul does not pass judgment on this situation between Yodia and Syntyche about who is right or who is wrong. He just tells these women to agree, which leads us to our focus question. Must Christians be in agreement? Believe it or not, I think the answer is yes. And the reason I think that it is yes is because the Bible outright commands it in no uncertain terms. So consider just a few passages, a handful out of many others that are in the Bible, that call us to unity and agreement. We've talked about this before. We need to talk about it constantly. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of this stuff pretty consistently and constantly. So think about what these verses say to us about being in agreement with each other. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 and 11. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. Or how about 2 Corinthians 13, 11? Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, become mature, be encouraged, be of the same mind, be at peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Romans twelve sixteen. live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, instead associate with the humble, do not be wise in your own estimation. Or how about Romans fifteen five? now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, 2-3, read it a couple of days ago. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Finally, 1 Peter 3.8, Peter says, Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for insult. I mean, evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing. 
So, six different commands, right? A small slice of the Bible's call for Christians to be in unity and agreement with each other. Now, you might think, ah, that's pretty much impossible. But I want to point you back to these passages, especially 1 Corinthians 1, 10 and 11. We have to agree with each other. We have to be united with each other. There can't be divisions. We have to be like-minded, be sympathetic, think the same way, be united in spirit, live in harmony. That's said twice. Have the same mind. So, It's said in so many different ways that I don't believe we can or should ignore the biblical call to agreement. So often, our concern in a dispute is which one is right and which one is wrong. Now, it's my considered opinion, having observed conflict uh, very often over the years, that the vast majority of arguments and conflicts and disagreements I've seen among Christians does not display a strong right or wrong side. Now, don't get me wrong. There are definitely some conflicts among Christians or people who claim to be Christians where the position of one side is far more biblically true than the position of the other side. And I don't believe that we should compromise the Word of God in order to agree with somebody. But I estimate that somewhere around 90% of the conflicts that Christians have with each other are not issues of right or wrong, but more along the lines of gradients and opinions and things like that. Things along the lines of, what worship style should this church feature? What masking policy should we have as a church? How should our family, school, church, etc. respond to coronavirus? Should our church move? locations? Should we build a building? Should we rebuild somehow? Should we hire somebody? Should we fire somebody? Should we add this program? Should we remove that program? Should we spend this amount of money in this area or that amount of money in that area or both? Should we change this element of things or add this element to the service? Should we do this event or do that event or do both or do neither? How involved or uninvolved should a Christian be politically? What's your position on Prop 35,421Q? Now, I'm just kidding, but out here in California, unlike my home state of Alabama, we vote every year on all of these propositions. And man, I just got to say, they're a little on the complicated side. Now, the commercials seem to indicate that they're nothing less than crystal clear which way you should vote, but... When you actually go look at the proposition, as I have, you kind of end up scratching your head to some of these things like, wait, what does that mean? What? I I, I don't know. I want some really clear things to vote for, not, you know, should we increase rent control in this one little sector, sector by 0.03% for people that have lived there for 15 years or more when Sagittarius is in the house of Aquarius? I mean, I, that's sort of what I'm reading now. Now, I, I'm going to read more between now and the election, so I'm not a blithering idiot about all of these things. But I got to tell you, the first few glances have not been very encouraging to me in understanding all of these propositions on the ballot. Other issues that Christians might argue about. What exactly should be done about the race problems in this country? And when I say exactly, I mean that's a lot of times what's argued about. What should we do exactly? And I've seen people get really steamed if one person doesn't exactly agree with the other. So, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of these discussions definitely have some biblical dimensions to them, but none of them are clearly, clearly outlined in the Bible. And regardless of all that, the Bible calls us to agree to be in harmony, to have no divisions, etc. So how in the world do we do that?
Well, I think step number one is extremely important. We must recognize, first and foremost, that we must agree. It's not an option for the people of Jesus to quarrel and fight. It's not an option for us to be in disunity, no matter how important the issue might seem. Unfortunately, and yet very realistically, I need to tell you that there's no step-by-step instruction in the Bible on coming together in agreement over every issue. You must do it, and I must do it, because anything less than us being in agreement will drive people away from the good news of Jesus. Remember, we've talked about John 17 before, where Jesus directly ties in unity among his people with the ability of lost people to hear the gospel. So John 17, 20 through 23 says, uh, Jesus is praying and he says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So, hey, friends, our disagreement mutes our proclamation of the gospel and our unity shouts it. So what do we do? Well, we speak the truth in love. We outdo each other in showing honor. We display the humility of Christ. We consider each one better than ourselves. We don't demand to be first like diatrophies. We refuse to quarrel, knowing that the Lord's servants must not quarrel. We display patient love and long-suffering. We greet each other with a holy kiss. We love our neighbor as ourselves. We keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we love our enemies, pray for those who curse us, and do good for all, especially those who are Christians. All of those are biblical commands. There's no miracle way to come into agreement. It's one of the hardest tasks we have in front of us, but so much of the Bible is written to tell us how to treat each other, and all of that is absolutely applicable to this call to unity and agreement. So I plead with you, dear listener, be in agreement with your Christian brothers and sisters. We continue with 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 1. A man of God came, however, from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing beside the altar to burn incense. The man of God cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son will be born to the house of David named Josiah, and he will sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who are burning incense on you. Human bones will be burned on you. He gave a sign that day. He said, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. The altar will now be ripped apart and the ashes that are on it will be poured out. When the king heard the message that the man of God had cried out against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar and said, arrest him. But the hand he stretched out against him withered and he could not pull it back to himself. The altar was ripped apart and the ashes poured from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king responded to the man of God, plead for the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me so that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God pleaded for the favor of the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it had been at first. Then the king declared to the man of God, Come home with me, refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. But the man of God replied, If you were to give me half your house, I still wouldn't go with you, and I wouldn't eat food or drink in this place, for this is what I was commanded by the word of God. You must not eat food or drink water or go back the way you came. So he went another way. He did not go back the way he had come to Bethel. 
Now a certain old prophet was living in Bethel. His son came and told him all the deeds that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. His sons also told their father the words that he had spoken to the king. Then the father asked them, which way did he go? His sons had seen the way taken by the man of God who had gone from Judas. Then he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he got on it. He followed the man of God and found him sitting under an oak tree. And he asked him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he said. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat some food. But he answered, I cannot go back with you or accompany you. I will not eat food or drink water with you in this place. For a message came to me by the word of the Lord, You must not eat food or drink water there or go back by the way you came. But he said to him, I am also a prophet like you. An angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. Bring him back with you to your house so that you may eat, so that he may eat food and drink water. The old prophet deceived him. And the man of God went back with him, ate food in his house, and drank water. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And the prophet cried out to the man of God who had came from Judah, This is what the Lord says, because you rebelled against the Lord's command and did not keep the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but you went back and ate food and drank water in the place that he said to you, Do not eat food and drink water. Your corpse will never reach the grave of your ancestors. So after he had eaten food and after he had drunk, the old prophet saddled the donkey for the prophet he had brought back. When he left, a lion attacked him along the road and killed him. His corpse was thrown on the road and the donkey was standing beside it. The lion was standing beside the corpse too. There were men passing by who saw the corpse thrown on the road and the lion standing beside it. And they went and spoke about it in the city where the old prophet lived. When the prophet who had brought him back from his way heard about it, he said, He is the man of God who disobeyed the Lord's command. The Lord has given him to the lion, and it has mauled and killed him, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to him. Then the old prophet instructed his son, Saddle the donkey for me. They saddled it, and he went and found the corpse thrown on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse or mauled the donkey, so the prophet lifted the corpse of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back. The old prophet came into the city to mourn and to bury him. Then he laid the corpse in his own grave, and they mourned over him. Oh, my brother. After he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the message that he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines of the high places in the cities of Samaria is certain to happen. Even after this, Jeroboam did not repent of his evil way, but again made priests for the high places from the ranks of the people. He ordained whoever so desired it, and they became priests of the high places. This was the sin that caused the house of Jeroboam to be cut off and obliterated from the face of the earth. Psalm chapter 95 verse 1. Come, let's shout joyfully to the Lord, shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let's enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hands and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. As on the day at Massah in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was disgusted with that generation. I said they are a people whose hearts go astray, for they do not know my ways. 
So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Psalm 96. Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all the peoples. For the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Let the whole earth tremble before him. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the peoples fairly. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them celebrate. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord. For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. Amen. Ezekiel 43. Verse 1, He led me to the gate, the one that faces east, and I saw the the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice sounded like the roar of a huge torrent, and the earth shone with his glory. The vision I saw was like the one I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the ones I had seen by the Kabar Canal. I fell face down, and the glory of the Lord entered the temple by way of the gate that faced east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from the temple. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet, where I will dwell among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel and their kings will no longer defile my holy name by their religious prostitution and by the corpses of their kings at their high places. Whenever they placed their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them, They were defiling my holy name by the detestable acts they committed. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them remove their prostitution and the corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever. As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel so that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. Let them measure its pattern, and they will be ashamed of all that they have done. Reveal the design of the temple to them, its layouts with its exits and entrances, its complete design along with all its statutes, design specifications, and laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may observe its complete design and all its statutes and may carry them out. This is the law of the temple. All its surrounding territory on top of the mountain will be especially holy. Yes, this is the law of the temple. These are the measurements of the altar in units of length, each unit being the standard length plus 3 inches. The gutter is 21 inches deep and 21 inches wide with a rim of 9 inches around its edge. This is the base of the altar. The distance from the gutter on the ground to the lower ledge is 3.5 feet and the width of the ledge is 21 inches. There are 7 feet from the small ledge to the large ledge whose width is also 21 inches. The altar hearth is 7 feet high and the four horns project upward from the hearth. The hearth is square, 21 feet long by 21 feet wide. The ledge is 24.5 feet long by 24.5 feet wide with four equal sides. The rim all around it is 10.5 inches and the gutter is 21 inches all around it. The altar steps face east. Then he said to me, Son of man, this is what the Lord God says. These are the statutes for the altar on the day it is constructed so that burnt offerings may be sacrificed on it and blood may be splattered on it. 
You were to give a bull from the herd as a sin offering to the Levitical priests who were from the offspring of Zadok, who approached me in order to serve me. This is the declaration of the Lord God. You were to take some of its blood and apply it to the four horns of the altar, the four corners of the ledge, and all around the rim. In this way, you will purify the altar and make atonement for it. Then you are to take away the bull for the sin offering, and it must be burned outside the sanctuary in the place appointed for the temple. On the second day, you are to present an unblemished male goat as a sin offering. They will purify the altar just as they did with the bull. When you have finished the purification, you are to present a young unblemished bull and an unblemished ram from the flock. You are to present them before the Lord. The priests will throw salt on them and sacrifice them as a burnt offering to the Lord. You will offer a goat for a sin offering each day for seven days. A young bull and a ram from the flock, both unblemished, are also to be offered. For seven days, the priests are to make atonement for the altar and cleanse it. In this way, they will consecrate it and complete the days of purification. Then on the eighth day and afterward, the priests will offer your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar, and I will accept you. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Amen. Good day to you, friends, and Godspeed.